Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Turn with me in your um, scriptures to Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12. So this is going to be part three of a, a series that we're doing. In the first part, we looked at who is Malkitzedek? Who is Malkitzedek? And we went back into the the Torah, and we trace Malkitzedek all the way forward from the Torah into the prophets, and then we saw its culmination with Yeshua and Yochanan Hamatbi, or John the Immerser, and the transference of priesthoods at the hand of John the Baptist, who was, in fact, an Aaronic high priest at the time. We saw the transference of priesthoods from the Levitical into the Malkitzedek, and the culmination of Yeshua rising from the dead as a Malkitzedek high priest after he had stated that it is finished and he's now able to sit down interceding as the Malkitzedek high priest on our behalf. So in the first part of the series, we identified Malkitzedek from Genesis all the way forward. Now, last time we came together in the second series, second step, we looked at those law verses, those law verses that we all struggled with in Christianity, in the typical religion of Christianity, where, you know, the law is nailed to the cross. And those supposed law verses, specifically when it comes to Paul and he communicates about the law, we were taught, many of us, that the law is nailed to the cross. But what does it mean? We've been looking into these law verses and understanding a huge paradigm shift that what the Apostle Paul was doing was juxtaposing the book of the covenant and the book of the law. And that truly, if you are in Messiah, you are not under the book of the law, but you are to return to covenant fidelity, which is royal Torah. So it's a game changer. The last time we were together, we looked at the distinction between the book of the law, which was imposed, and the book of the covenant that was agreed to and ratified, that they are in fact two separate, never to be confused as one, but two separate distinct books. But today, we are going to look now at in depth, this Malkitzedic covenant, which of course was given by Yahweh to Avram, and we are indeed what? The children of Avraham, Paul clearly communicates to those in Galatia, and that we should then understand that we are to be partakers of this covenant if we are in the Malkitzedic and under the Malkitzedic Yahushua. Hamashiach. So it really is a game changer today. So let's begin by looking at Bereshit Genesis chapter 12. Because what we're going to find is that in Bereshit Genesis chapter 12, we see that Yahweh now makes an oath. He swears an oath to Avraham. This is the inception of the Malkitzedic covenant. And this is an unconditional covenant because man isn't involved. Yahweh oaths to himself that he's going to do certain things for Avraham and that Avraham and his Zerah, his seeds, his seed after him will be inheritors of this Malkitzedek priesthood or covenant. And it begins in Genesis Bereshit chapter 12. 
Now Yahweh said to Avram before he changed his name, get out of your country and from your mishpocha, your family, and your abba's bayit. You see, for all of us, if we're truly going to walk with Yahweh, it comes at a cost. And that is the cost tonight that most people aren't willing to pay. You have got to leave your pagan sun god worship behind and you've got to follow Yahweh. You have to come into covenant and you have to do Bible things, Bible ways. And that's really hard for people because the culture is so important to people. And we have to understand the religions of the world today, the traditional religions of the world today are religions of compromise. Christianity was invented in 325 of the Common Era by Constantine, and its whole purpose was to compromise with the culture. I'm not making this up. It's true. Christianity is a religion that was invented in 325 by Constantine, and its purpose is syncretism, to compromise the Scripture with the culture to enable more people to come into the fold of dogma. That's what it is. Now, Judaism is no different. It is a religion that has compromised with a rabbinic culture. If you want to be a people of compromise, then you should join a religion. But if you want to be a people of truth, then you should join a priesthood. And it's called the Malkitzedic priesthood. And that means that you've got to cross over from one pagan, corrupted, sun god worship soil, smash the idols, just like Avram did. He smashed his father's idols. And then you go and you come into a better way, a better soil, and you become a Hebrew. One who crosses over from one soil to a better soil and you produce a crop of righteousness and holiness. But you've got to be zealous. You've got to go around and smash some idols. And you know you've got to get in people's faces and say, that's wrong. That's just not, that's not the Bible ways to do things. We don't compromise with the culture. We crush the culture and we become, in fact, a priesthood of righteousness because we don't compromise. Because the culture is going to get carried away into FEMA camps. Let's realize that, okay? We're not going to be a part of that. Oh, they'll be offering the medications, the vaccinations, the free food, and all of that to gather you all in, and everybody will be sheep or will go because they compromise with the culture because they think they're going to get protected. Your only protection comes from being kadosh, holy. And those that lived in Qumran realized it. And that's why they didn't compromise with the Roman culture and we can't compromise with the Greco-Roman culture around us today. Now, Yahweh said to Avram, get out of your country and from your mishpocha and from your Abba's Bayit, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. You've got to walk by faith, not by sight, but by faith. And I will make you a great nation, a goy gadol, a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you shall be a bracha, a blessing. 
And I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. And in you, all the mishpochot, the families of the earth, shall be blessed. They shall be mixed. This right here is the inception of the Malkitzedic realm of life. It's an unconditional covenant. Yahweh swears by no one higher than himself. Psalm 110 references this. That Avraham, Avraham is now going to be a partaker of this covenant. But we have to understand something here. Yahweh offers this unconditional covenant because it is Yahweh swearing by himself. It's as if Yahweh was to say to Abraham, Hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you all of this. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you multiplicity. And Abraham goes away. He most probably talks to his wife, and he most probably then has some doubts. And he comes back to Yahweh, and he says, how do I really know that I'm going to get these things? It's as if today somebody came to you, and they said, hey, look, I'm going to give you my house. I have an extra house. It's bought and paid for. I'm going to give it to you. You'd be like, really? And then you walk away and you talk to some people and they'd be like, how, how do you know the person's really going to come through? And you'd be like, well, yeah, maybe they won't. Maybe they're changing my mind. I know what. I'm going to go back to the person that offered me the house free and clear. I'm going to see if I can get some kind of signature on some kind of writing so that I've got a contract so that I know that this is really going to happen. That's exactly what Abraham did. He goes back to Yahweh and he says, how do I know that I'm really going to inherit these things. And at that point, he, Yahweh enacts a conditional contract, which is now where we're going to go to. We're going to have a look at this conditional contract, which is the Genesis 15 conditional covenant. Yahweh was willing to do it unconditionally with no strings attached. But because Abraham had a lack of faith, he goes back and he requests, kind of like a signature guarantee. Yahweh says, okay, you now want something to show that I'm really going to do it? Well, now go and half some animals and we will make this contract. So what we have to understand now is the difference between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Genesis 12, an unconditional covenant. This is the inception of the Malkitzedic. This is what everything wraps around. But because Avraham requested more, a guarantee, Yahweh enacts a conditional arm of this covenant. Hebrews 6.13, it is written, for when Yah made promise to Avraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiply I will bless thee. So the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 is referencing Genesis 12. He's referencing Genesis 12, specifically Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3, the Genesis 12 oath covenant. Yahweh oath, he agreed, he covenanted to himself to bless Avraham and his descendants before, this is key, before Yahweh ever entered into a covenant 
with Abraham and his descendants at Genesis 15. Can we clearly see that? This is really important. Because now, because Avraham had a lapse of faith and he wanted some kind of guarantee, now we're going to go to the conditional This is a conditional arm of the covenant, Genesis 12. Now, this can be broken. And if it's broken, somebody's going to have to die. Why do I say that? Because it's got a death penalty attachment to it. The halving of the animals, the flaying open of the animals, and the walking between the pieces says that if this covenant is broken, it's conditional, then there is going to be a death penalty enactment. This is so important for us to understand because this is going to come all the way forward to Yeshua, who is our kinsman redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. We're going to see now, Avraham said, Master Yahweh, Genesis 15, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? Give me some kind of guarantee. And he said to him, take a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took for him all these and divided them in the midst. Now the writer of Hebrews identifies Genesis 12 as the unconditional covenant. Yahweh swears by himself, for there is no one greater. And what most miss in Genesis 12, there is no death penalty position, is there? It's an unconditional covenant. There's no going between slaughtered animals in Genesis 12. The only covenant that can be broken is one that what? The only covenant that can be broken is one that we're involved in. And the only covenant that can't be broken is one that we're not involved in. Does that make sense? So had Avraham not gone back to Yahweh, we'd have all been good. Because man wouldn't have been involved in it. It was an unconditional covenant. But because Avraham had a crisis of faith and he requests a signature guarantee, now we come into a conditional arm where man is involved, where there's a death penalty that if it's broken, we've got some problems. Somebody's going to have to die for you to get back to the blessings of Genesis 12. Because ultimately, we all want to get back to the blessings of an unconditional covenant relationship with Yahweh, don't we? I don't want to be in a conditional covenant relationship with Yahweh because I know what I'm like. I know how evil, wicked, and decrepit my heart, my mind, my thoughts are. I don't trust myself. I only trust Yahweh. And I'm just being honest with you. There may be some of you who are like, oh, well, I totally trust myself. Well, be wary lest you fall. Right? Okay? Because the person that usually says that, they're just about, going, they're about to go down. I mean, I live in reality. I don't trust myself. Therefore, I put up a lot of guards and a lot of fences, you know, walking around like this, you know, because I know what I'm like naturally. Genesis 15:10 And he took unto him all these and he divided them in the midst and laid each piece 
one against another. But the birds he divided not. Why didn't he divide the birds? Because this is a prophecy of a death penalty picture. Somebody will have to die if this covenant is broken. And we can pretty much figure out that if man's going to be involved in it, it most probably at some point will be broken. So there's going to have to be a death penalty position. But the birds are not flayed open because you try flaying open a bird without breaking any of its bones. Because whoever's going to pay the death penalty position, none of their bones will be broken. Hence, the birds are not flayed open. And verse 11, And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Avram drove them away. Now this really speaks to the children of Israel, the seed of Avraham. We're supposed to be people that are walking with Avraham, that when the wickedness, the unclean of the world tries to come into the faith, we're supposed to beat the tar out of them. I mean, we're supposed to, we're supposed to drive them away. We truly are. We truly are. We're supposed to fight off the uncleanness of the world, those unclean entities, demons, principalities that will try to invade the faith and come into the covenant realm of the people. This is what Abraham does. He drives away the unclean. He drives away the demons and the unclean realm that tries to come into covenant with you. Tonight, many people are out there making covenant with the unclean realm by going into Halloween ritual, and they don't realize it. Well, I don't celebrate Halloween. No, we don't do that. But yeah, when someone comes to the house, we're going to give them some candy. You're like, what? Now, 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 can you explain that? People really don't. Oh, and I would never celebrate Halloween. Well, what's the bowl of candy doing, and what... Wow, it truly is the blind leading the blind. No discernment. That's the world that we live in today. But we can now see in verse 12 something interesting happens. And when the sun was going down, a deep, the Hebrew word here, Tardamay, fell upon Avram, and lo, a great horror of darkness fell upon him. Now, traditionally, Judaism tells you that Avraham took a nap. He fell asleep. This is a covenant. This is a legal binding contract. You try going to your lawyer and now being in the room with your lawyer and putting together a legal binding conditional contract and you falling asleep and not being even conscious of what the terms are to the treaty. Do you think that would fly? But we're supposed to believe here that Abraham just passed out and went to sleep and has got no idea what's going on. But the Hebrew word here, tardamay, it does not necessarily and contextually, it doesn't mean sleep. Imagine that you are in the presence of Yahweh. Just imagine that for a moment. And you're about to enter into covenant. Would you be put in, could you imagine that that would put you in a trance-like state where you were just blown away at his magnificence, at his glory, that you would be almost in a trance-like state? Tardame means a trance. In context here, Abraham was conscious, he was aware of what's going on, 
He heard Yahweh's voice, but he was in a trance-like state, but he was still conscious and a witness to the covenantal contract. He was not asleep, as Judaism and traditional Christianity tell you, because you have to have two conscious parties for a treaty, a contract, a covenant to be valid, right? Of course you do. Try going to the judge after you've been locked up for some protest against the New World Order and falling asleep. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So we can see now in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15, that Avraham, Abram as he's called there, is awake because Yahweh is not the author of confusion and he would be very confused if he was passed out asleep and he woke up to the reality of what was going on right there. And Yahweh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, he is not the author of confusion. There is no point to speak and to demonstrate where there is no visual or audible conscious perception. Why would Yahweh speak to somebody who could not consciously perceive what he was saying? That would be very confusing. Now we understand what Yeshua was saying in Yochanan chapter 8 verse 56. Your father, Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. He was awake. He was conscious. And he was glad. Why? Because Yeshua was the very one that passed between the pieces as the burning torch, the smoking oven, the one that would pay the death penalty position, whose bones wouldn't be broken if, if Israel broke the covenant. And we're going to find out that later on, down the trail of history, that they did in fact break this covenant. Jeremiah 31 verse 32 Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which they, my covenant, they broke. Although I was a husband to them, saith Yahweh. This is interesting because what we find right here from the prophet Jeremiah in the 31st chapter, in the 32nd verse, that they broke what? My covenant, although I was a husband to them, saith Yahweh. There, they, them. This is all 12 tribes. This isn't just a Jewish thing. Oh, that's for the Jews. The Torah, it's for the Jews. No, this is for they, all 12 tribes, and the sojourner, the stranger, the foreigner, that wanted to leave pagan sun god worship and cross over and join them too. Open to all people. There is neither male or female, slave or free. But you're all one in Messiah. You see, the only blood ratified covenant, the only one, the only blood ratified covenant that these fathers were physically party to was what? We're going to now jump forward 430 years, as Paul says to the Galatians. And we're going to see that the only covenant that Israel is party to is now going to be, we'll see it unfolding in Exodus chapter 19. So let me back up. Genesis 12, Yahweh makes an unconditional Malkitzedic oath to Abraham. Abraham goes away and he comes back, has some doubts. 
and he wants a conditional arm to that covenant. So Yahweh gives him a conditional arm to that covenant, Genesis 15. This is the Melchizedek promises to Abraham and to his descendants. But it is now not going to be realized until 430 years later when it goes now national. Israel has come out of Egypt and now they are around Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19 now, Yahweh is going to propose to Israel... They're going to accept his offer. He's then going to have blood ratification of this covenant. And then there's going to be a covenant confirming meal. And this is going to be the deed of all of this Malkitzedic history. Genesis 12, 15, wrapped up in a covenant. And it's going to be given to the children of Israel so that they can be a holy nation, and a kingdom of Malkitzedic priests. Genesis 12, 15, culminated 430 years later at Exodus 19. This is the pinnacle of the faith where Yahweh is going to let his people now nationally, the seed of Abraham that has multiplied from 75 when they went down into Egypt, 70 in excess, to coming out as a Millions, and they're going to be a kingdom of priests to the nations, to the nations. We're now going to see this in Exodus chapter 19. Because the book of the covenant, which is mentioned by name in Exodus 19, is the seal. It's the inheritance. It's the promise of everything brought forward from Genesis 12 forward. It's the fulfillment. It's the seal of what Yahweh spoke to Abraham. It's the realization. But we're going to find in less than 40 days after it was accepted, blood ratified, supposed to be put into an ark because it was the ark of the covenant. What did Israel do within 40 days? They decided to have Christmas. All right, they worshipped a golden calf, which is pretty much the same thing. Saying that you're going to worship the Creator the way the pagans worship their gods and wrap it up in a nice bow. And Yahweh says, you will not worship me the way the heathen worship their gods. I am Yahweh. You shall come out from her. You shall be separate and be a holy, righteous people. Don't compromise the faith. So today, fast forward into the 21st century, all of this pagan stuff that's brought into the faith, it is unacceptable, Exodus 32, to Yahweh. You cannot change the feasts of Yahweh to your own days. Syncretism is Catholicism on steroids, and that's the reality of the world of the faith today. The Protestants didn't protest hard enough. Martin Luther only had half a dozen manuscripts in the Greek and various other forms on which he could work from. Today, we don't have the excuses that our forefathers have. We have access to so much information that we can search out truth at the tap of a button. We're going to be held to a far higher standard than any generation that walked before us. Because to him who knows it's a sin and doesn't act upon it, oh my goodness, there's going to be an accounting. There is going to be accounting. Many of you better not want to be teachers 
because there's a higher accounting. But you all are teachers because you're trying to teach this to your friends, to your families. Or like the man in the back, he just goes downtown and just preaches it all downtown, right? See, and he didn't even know that. See, I'm watching. And if you think I'm watching, (laughs) can you imagine who else is watching? My goodness. Galatians 3.17 frames the situation in that the book of the covenant, that seal, that inheritance, was 430 years later, over four centuries later, removed from the Genesis 15 promise. You cannot break the 430-year removed seal without what? Breaking the conditional covenant from which it was attached. They're connected. The Sinai Book of the Covenant, Exodus 19.5, through Exodus 24, verse 8, was the Genesis 15 seal made with Abraham's descendants. But these descendants, they broke that seal, and now the promise has no seal, does it? It's broken, meaning somebody's going to have to die so that the children of Israel, those that want to cross over from the paganism of the world, can actually connect back to the Genesis 12 unconditional oath. That's the faith. Yeshua died not so that you could compromise in the culture and go to church on Sunday. Yeshua died so that you could come into covenant and connect back to Yahweh's perfect will of Genesis 12 and walk in royal covenant Torah, which is not book of the law imposed Levitical Torah. It is different because Abraham never knew a Levite. He never saw the temple and he wasn't involved in Levitical animal sacrifice, dogma and religion. And neither should you or I be. We're not to be into Judaism on that broad road and we're not to be into the customs of Christianity in that broad road. We're to be on a narrow road which is royal covenant Torah that leads to life. It's taken me 10 years to navigate through it all to even get to this point. Goodness knows what's going to happen if we're around for another 10. But Hillary will make sure that we're not. I mean, really? I mean, are we really going to have more Clintons in the White House? I'm sorry, but I mean... People are so stupid, and I like to use that word infrequently, that it most probably will happen. Again. So really, we're just under tyranny and dictatorship, because if you look at it over the past century, you haven't had many choices. You've got the Bushes or the Clintons, or the Bushes or the Clintons, or somebody to throw you off the scent for eight years, and then we'll have the... Bushes or the Clintons. Democracy. Here's a choice. Not really. Kind of make you think you have a choice, though. Let's get back on hand. (laughs) I like to make it real, though. What we're going to find, though, is Yeshua has the covenant legal right of standing to die in our place. The Genesis 12 oath did not 
Hence, the Genesis 15 covenant was employed because it could be broken for a purpose. That Genesis 15 covenant could be broken for a purpose, Yahweh's plan of salvation to bring us back into the fold. Look what it says in Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. But later on, we're going to find in the, in the Tanakh, Yahweh says that um, they broke the covenant. But hang on, right here he says, my covenant, what does he say? My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Was Genesis 15 Yahweh's covenant that came out of his lips? No. That was Abraham coming back requesting his own covenant guarantee. But the covenant that is Yahweh's and Yahweh's alone, that actually came out of his own lips, that he swore, Hebrews 6.13, is the Genesis 12 unconditional covenant that no matter what you do, it will never be broken. It will always stand. That even if you break the Genesis 15 covenant, if somebody pays the death penalty position, there's always going to be a way back to perfection. But you cannot circumnavigate the death penalty position. If you deny the death penalty position and the one that paid the death penalty position, you will not come back to Genesis 12, Malkitzedic reality. If you pretend that the death penalty position allows you to be lawless and play in the nations and compromise with the culture, and you have no desire to connect back to Genesis 12, guess what? You're still lost out in the nations. If you deny Messiah and that he paid the death penalty position, guess what? You're still lost out in the nations. There is no life, and I'll even stick my neck out, There is no salvation outside of Genesis chapter 12. Salvation only comes through the death penalty position and entrance into what it accomplished. If you just take the blood and dance on it, Hebrews 10.26, you are counting the covenant as a common thing, and you're trampling on the blood of Messiah. It's a serious walk that we have, and most people are still out in the nations thinking that the death penalty payer, the Goel, Kingsman, Redeemer, allows you to compromise with the culture. They have no desire to connect back to Genesis 12. That's where salvation is, because that is Yahweh's perfect uncompromising, unconditional nature. Truly amazing. Evidence, though, of the conditional nature of Genesis 15, the flaying open of the animals. We even say it today. Well, we may not, but the heathen certainly does. I cross my heart and hope to die. What is that? I mean, that's in our modern-day vernacular. The crossing of the heart evidence is what? the dividing of the flesh, the hope to die part, well, that evidence is the death penalty. Even today when somebody gets married in a traditional church setting, you have what? 
the flayed open pieces. You have flesh on this side of the aisle, flesh on that side of the aisle, and you walk between the pieces, and it's evidenced by the one at the end. When a building, a new building is dedicated, there is a red ribbon and there is a cutting of the ribbon to evidence what? You see, all of this comes from Genesis 15 and it comes into our culture today and we don't even realize it. It's contractual agreement. Breaking the Exodus book of the covenant seal that came 430 years later... Exodus 19.5 through Exodus 24, verse 8. They broke it at Exodus 32 with the sin of the golden calf. It literally broke the Genesis 15 promise. But of course, it did not break the unconditional oath of Genesis 12. And now you'll understand what Rav Shaliak Shaul, Rabbi Apostle Paul, when he's communicating those law verses that everyone wants to run away with and say, oh, you're not under the law. We're not Jews. We don't have to do any law. They're not understanding. Paul's words are hard to understand, Peter writes. And those that are untaught and unlearned, they twist For their own destruction. They'll stay out in the nations. And they'll live a compromised faith. But truly what Paul is doing. is juxtaposing book of the law. That was imposed because they broke the covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.11 For if that which is done away was glorious. Much more that which remains is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, who put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished. So what happened is that Israel agreed to this covenant in Exodus 19. Through Exodus 24, verse 8. Then there's this covenant confirming meal in Exodus 24, verse 10. It's blood ratified, which means Galatians says that you cannot, Paul to the Galatians says, you cannot add to a blood ratified covenant. It's done, it's sealed. You can't add another word to it. But Israel then breaks the covenant within 40 days by the sin of the golden calf. And Yahweh is going to wipe them all out. He's going to slaughter, commit genocide on the whole of Israel. But Moshe, who was the last Zedek, was up on the mountain. And he wasn't involved in the sin of the golden calf. And he intercedes as a mediator. And he says, Yahweh, please don't, don't wipe out Israel. And Yahweh relents. And he says, okay, I won't wipe out Israel. But they've broken the covenant. Therefore, he imposes the book of the law as a tutor, as a schoolmaster over Israel. Well, they're no longer going to be a kingdom of priests, but they will be a kingdom with a priest. That's a big difference. And the Levitical priesthood is born at the golden calf. Because in Exodus 24, 12... 
Yahweh says to, to Moshe, come up here and receive the law also. Well, hang on a minute. It cannot be attached to the covenant because the covenant is already sealed and blood ratified. It has to be something distinctly different. Because the Ark of the Covenant contains the covenant and the book of the law, which was a witness against them because it was added to keep them under mediation so that they wouldn't be wiped out until the death penalty position was paid by Messiah. That book of the law was in a pocket outside, Deuteronomy tells you, and I believe the 31st chapter, as a witness against them for breaking the covenant. The Song of Moses specifically is a song that is sung to remind the children it's a witness against them for breaking the covenant. So when Paul says to the Corinthians, for that which is done away was glorious. Yes, the book of the law, it was glorious because why? Because it enabled Israel to stay alive. That's pretty amazing considering Yahweh was going to slaughter them. Much more, that which remains is glorious. What remains? Genesis 12 remains. It always remained. The opportunity to get back into it always remained. Seeing then that we have such a hope. We use great plainness of speech, but nobody can understand a word that we're saying because you're a bunch of lawless heathens. And not as Moses who put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that book of the law, which is now abolished. It's not that the whole Torah is abolished and you can be lawless. It's that the book of the law is abolished because Yeshua paid the death penalty position so that now you can enter back into the Genesis 12 royal covenant Torah, which is Yahweh's Shabbat feasts and royal Malkitetic priesthood. So we've got people interpreting this as lawlessness or full-on rabbinical Judaism. Two broad roads, just like Balaam on his donkey. You've got the vineyard over here of Judaism, the vineyard over here of Christianity, and they're both going headway to destruction. Yet the narrow road connects you back to covenant royal Torah. Yeshua's brother said it was the royal law. Hebrews 9.10 talks about the book of the law, and it says that these are carnal ordinances. Why was the book of the law carnal? Did they agree to it? Did they enter into the book of the law by faith? Book of the covenant was faith. All that Yahweh says we will do, that was faith. But the book of the law, it's carnal. It was imposed because you were carnal and fleshly. You got involved in carnal golden calf worship, syncretism. It was imposed on them until when? The time of reformation when the seed would come and pay the death penalty position. 2 Corinthians 3.13 Not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth, this is key, for until this day remaineth, the same veil is untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. He just told you. 
Today, people read the Old Testament and they still don't see the juxtaposition that Paul was taking, book of the law, book of the covenant. They still don't see it. People can read the, book of the, um, can read the Old Testament today and the veil is still over their face. He's lifting the veil. He's piercing the veil with you and I right now. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood that the veil has been lifted. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 10. We're going to now see again with this, Zechariah 11.10, and then put a finger there and go to Psalm 89 verse 34. We're going to see the juxtaposition of the unconditional and conditional covenant with these two verses. Zechariah 11 verse 10 is talking about a conditional covenant. This would be Genesis 15. Listen. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder that I might break my covenant which I made with all the people. That's Genesis 15. We broke the book of the covenant, the Exodus 19.5 seal, to the Bereshit Genesis 15 promise, allowing Yahweh to break his part which then invoked the death penalty position of the covenant between the pieces. But everything is still wrapped around that oath, which is unconditional in Genesis 12. You see, Yahweh breaking the covenant of Genesis 15 in no way breaks the oath that he swore unto himself in Genesis 12. That's your security. Even though these covenants... Abraham and Sinai were ultimately broken. Yahweh had of himself made an oath to the then living Abraham. That is why this verse and many others can intelligently state my covenant because it does not mean our covenant. Now, when you read Psalm 89 verse 34, you're going to see this is now talking about the unconditional covenant of Genesis 12. My covenant will I not break. Is Yahweh double speaking here? Or is there a distinction between an unconditional covenant that he will not break and a conditional covenant which he will break? You see? My covenant will I not break. Genesis 12 nor alter the thing. Just for clarification, in case you're wondering which covenant it is, he's now going to clarify it. Nor alter the thing which has gone out of my lips. I swore an oath to myself out of my lips that man wasn't involved in. He swore by himself, by no one higher, Hebrews 6.13. But this is the big stumbling block for people. Because I teach this and I say, look, you're not supposed to do the book of the law. That has been abolished. And people say, man, it's all about Torah. You can't, you can't do away with the Levitical part of the Torah. Well, Abraham walked in righteousness before Yahweh, and he didn't do Levitical Torah. And we're supposed to be the children of Abraham and do as Abraham did. So this is the key. And people don't quite understand it. 
It's not a change of Torah to enact the change in Torah that has always been in Torah. You're enacting the change that is in place in Torah, transferring you back from under the imposed book of the law that was added for transgression, back to perfection, which is royal covenant, Malkitzedic, Genesis 12, Torah. That's what Abraham did, and that's what we're to do. And Yeshua is the one that can allow you to connect back to it. It's amazing. So the book of the covenant contains Malkitzedic covenant law, not book of the law imposed. Both the Torah, but as Paul says to Timothy, we need to rightly divide the word of Torah. We need to rightly divide and distinguish between the two. Jeremiah 31 verse 32 clearly references the covenant that I made with their fathers. In context, again, this can only mean the covenant at Sinai. Jeremiah 31 32 declared breaking required that the death, death position for the non-performance of the Genesis 15 covenant be carried out. And it was. With the crucifixion of Yeshua, he paid that death penalty position. Turn with me to Galatians 3.17. This is the only place in the New Testament where the book of the law is mentioned by name to give you clarity of what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about you being lawless. He's saying you're not supposed to walk under the book of the law when Yeshua's paid the death penalty position to connect you back to the book of the covenant. You're supposed to walk in royal Malkitetic covenant Torah, not imposed book of the law Levitical hierarchy, which was going on with the Herodians. And certainly not this Constantinian lawlessness that has been around for 2,000 years either. My goodness, we are the generation that is truly, in truly, truly leading the way on the revelation of Malkitetic and what it means to walk in Yeshua and covenant Torah. Galatians 3.17. And this I say, that the covenant that was ratified, confirmed before the law, before the book of the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. It can't disannul the promise of Genesis 12 and make it of none effect. Even though they broke the covenant... And they were put under the book of the law, that book of the law that was imposed upon them that they never agreed to, which was a schoolmaster and a tutor until the Reformation, the time of Messiah, who paid the death penalty position, can never annul the Genesis 12 oath. Never. Even though the book of the law came 430 years after that oath, for if the inheritance is of the book of the law, is the inheritance of the book of the law? No. The inheritance is of the book of the covenant, which Abraham was given in Genesis chapter 12. The promise. That was the inception point of it. The inception point of the book of the covenant. Yet its written fulfillment was 430 years later. Exodus 19.5 to Exodus 24.8. That is the promise. The law is not of faith, 
That's what Paul says. The book of the law is not of faith. That's why so many in the Torah movement, you're like, where's the faith, man? It's all works. It's all rote. It's all rote and ritual. But where's the faith? Where's the supernatural power of healings, workings of miracles, signs and wonders that we need to be moving in? The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no longer of promise. But Yah gave it to Avraham by promise. Therefore then, wherefore then serveth the law? That's the book of the law, verse 10. It was added, the book of the law was added because of the transgression of the golden calf, till Messiah would come, to whom the promises were made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. It's right there. It makes, starts to make so much sense. Those law verses will come and bring clarity into your life. Second Timothy 2.15, we have to look at the rightly dividing point of Torah. Rightly dividing the word of Torah the word of truth. Psalm 119 tells us that his law, his Torah is truth. Now this speaks of Torah. This isn't speaking of Old Testament versus New Testament law versus grace. This is talking about the rightly dividing point between Malkitzedek agreed to and Levitical imposed not agreed to. You've got to rightly divide that and walk with Avraham's promise not the imposed tutor of Levi. Galatians 3.19, Wherefore then serveth the book of the law, verse 10, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promises was made. Hebrews 9.10, Which stood only in meats, drinks, and diverse washings, and carnal ordinances. This is book of the law it's talking about imposed upon them until the time of messianic reformation. Acts 3.21, until the time of the restitution of all things. When the death penalty position is paid, that is then the time of restitution of all things that you can now connect back to royal book of the covenant Torah. Acts 15.10, now therefore why do you tempt Yahweh to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? That yoke is to say that in Yeshua you're to walk in the book of the law. And you're supposed to partake of all of the Levitical Torah. That is a yoke not even our fathers could bear. That was the purpose of the prophets. The purpose of the prophets was to round up Israel when they were breaking the book of the law and say, come back into the fold because this is the only covenant that you have until Messiah comes. You're either in the book of the law and you're safe or you're going to be exiled and killed. That was the purpose of the prophets. The law was until when? Yochanan. 
and the prophets. For the priesthood, Hebrews 7.12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, a change also to the Torah. You have to change the Torah. Not to lawlessness, heaven forbid, but to covenant royal Torah, which was before the infraction. It's a change back to that which was better. You can't change the Torah. Well, take that up with Yahweh because he did. He changed it from the book of the covenant, royal law, to an imposed book of the law ordinance because of his mercy. If Yahweh can change the Torah to help you not get slaughtered, then guess what? When his son, who came from his bosom, pays the death penalty position, Yahweh can have the right to change the Torah back to royal covenant Torah. Take it up with him, not with me. He changed it. Genesis 49 tells you that the change would come because the scepter is in where? It will not depart from Shiloh until, meaning impending change, Messiah comes. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Genesis 49, something or other, I forget right now. Let's look at this actual book of the covenant. The actual scroll itself is Exodus 19.5 through chapter 24, verse 8. For it to be a Malchizedek covenant of promise, it has to have a proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal. And the fifth thing it has to have, it has to connect back to Abraham. So any other covenants in Scripture... They're not Malchizedek covenants if they don't have a proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal that goes back to Abraham. When Yeshua came into Jerusalem on a donkey, did he propose to Israel? Did Israel accept him? Was there blood ratification? Did he bleed? And was there a covenant-confirming meal? And does it connect back to Abraham? The marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. Is there a proposal? Is there an acceptance of him being the returning conquering king? Does he come with his robe dipped in? And is there a covenant confirming meal called the marriage supper of the Lamb? Does it connect you back to Abraham? Is it Melchizedek? You see, it's amazing. It's everywhere. It's everywhere when you start to understand these things. Book of the Covenant lifestyle living for us today is everything from Genesis 1.1 all the way to Exodus 24.10. That's Yahweh's Shabbats, his feasts. What to eat, what not to eat. How to worship him, how to come and celebrate the Sabbath and everything that is holy. That is the Abrahamic lifestyle faith, the Malchizedek realm, where you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Ritual immersion, mikvaot, or baptismo in the Greek, baptism, coming into that holy realm. That's the Malchizedek lifestyle. 
But the book of the law, that is abolished. And that is everything from Genesis, excuse me, from Exodus 24, 12, all the way through to the end of Deuteronomy. But this is where a lot of people get hung up. There's many things in the book of the law that are part of the covenant. Sabbath is in the book of the law, but there's much more detail about it because they had to get more tutorage and more schoolmaster. So if it's in the covenant, Genesis 1-1 through Exodus 24-10, the Feast of Yahweh, Exodus 24-23, they're in the book of the covenant. But there's going to be a lot more information about them in the book of the law because they had to be schooled and under a tutor. So you can go into the book of the law and you can glean many more things about how to keep the feasts of Yahweh. But you're not going to obviously bring in the Levitical hierarchy that's connected to it because that isn't Malkizedek. Sabbath, Exodus 20, it's in the book of the covenant. But there's a certain amount of dovetailing because you'll go into the book of the law and there's going to be much more information. Don't go out and collect sticks because they needed to be tutored. They needed more tutorage because they were rebellious, stiff-necked people. So you can go into the book of the law to find out how to do more of the book of the covenant lifestyle if it's in the book of the covenant. Levitical sacrifices are not in the book of the covenant. You don't go in and try and do that. I've got nothing against seat seats. I have got lots of seat seats. But that is a book of the law imposed thing. And they're wonderful if you want to wear them, but don't say that is a Malkizedic commandment. It's not in the book of the covenant. Why? Because they were whoremongers. They were whoring. They needed something over the front of their garment because they couldn't keep it in there. You and I are supposed to have it written on our hearts that we shouldn't have to do that. But there's nothing wrong if you need reminders. But don't say it's a Malkitsetic ordinance of fidelity. It was only added because they were infidels. No, they were not walking in fidelity. <laughs> the book of the law, it's first alluded to in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. Write a copy of this law in a book, book of the law. Why? Moses already had the book of the covenant, Exodus 24, 7 and 8. Then in Deuteronomy 28, verse 61, we see book of this law. Again, book of the law. But it is first mentioned by name, book of the law, exactly in Deuteronomy 29, verse 21. But again, it's first alluded to Write a copy of this book in a, this law in a book, but mention by name Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty one. This passage is very damaging because it presents a huge problem. It states, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, all the curses. 
all of the curses are found in the book of the law, which was a covenant, but it wasn't a Malkitzedic covenant. It was, wasn't agreed to. So it wasn't a traditional Brit. It was more of a imposed, not agreed to. So not in the typical terms that we would understand a covenant. And it's fascinating because all of the curses are in the book of the law. There's only one curse in the book of the covenant, and it's limited, and that is that you need to honor your mother and father so that your days will be long in the land. But that's one limited singular curse. But all the curses, plural, are in the book of the law. So cursed is he who pays the death penalty position because he will get rid of all the curses and return you to blessing. You see? So it's kind of insane to say Yeshua died on the tree so that I could return to the book of the law where all the curses are. Then I can sing the song of Moses that testifies against me that I broke the covenant. No, Yeshua died so that you could return to the book of the covenant where there are no curses, plural. You just have to honor your mother and father so that you will have long life in the land. That's a heritage. That's an inheritance. That's a promise given to Abraham. Let's look at the sequential countdown to finish up of this book of the covenant at Mount Sinai. Turn with me to Exodus 19, and we'll see now how this all plays out. In Exodus 19.5, we see the preliminary opening, the initiating statement. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be three things. A special treasure, a kingdom of Malkitzedic priests, and a holy set-apart nation. These are three conditional national blessings given to Israel. Then in verse 7 and 8, the people said, we agree to it. There was the proposal, and now they say, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. This is the pre-acceptance. Now in verse 9 through 11, the formalities begin. Moses is to go and to purify and sanctify the people. So is ritual immersion, baptism, part of the book of the covenant? Yes. Can you find more information about ritual immersion in the book of the law? For sure and for certain. Ritual immersion is definitely part of the covenant. Verse 12. Whoever then touches this mountain, what's going to happen to them? Put to death. There's this death personal penalty that's invoked. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, Yahweh spoke. He hasn't written yet, but he speaks all these words. Then in Exodus 20, verse 2 through 17, we get the formalities of those words, commonly called the Ten Commandments. Then in Exodus 21, part of this covenant is we're going to get the judgments, all these right rulings, how to live. And this includes the feast days of Yahweh. Then in verse 1 through 32 of Exodus 21, we're going to have, how do you deal with people? How are we going to deal with people in the Malkitzedic realm? There's rights of persons. I mean, there's a certain way that you're going to have to work with one another. 
That's part of Malkitzedic living. Also, in verses um, 33, Exodus 20, Exodus, excuse me, Exodus um, 21, verse 33, through Exodus 22, verse 15, we're going to have to deal with your property. How are we going to deal with all your trash? What are you going to do when you pack up all your trash and you go into the wilderness for the apocalypse? We're going to have to deal with rights of property. How do we deal with our stuff? Then verse 16 through 31, proper conduct. There's going to be rules and certain ways that you can behave and certain ways that aren't becoming in the priesthood. And then in Exodus 23, verse 1 through 9, there's proper justice. Not the New World Order type of justice, which is totally corrupt, and they'll just bring you into court. That's why Yahweh says to his people, you don't want to go into the courts of the nations. You want to try and avoid that. You want to try and deal with it face to face. You don't want to go into that system, because once you get hooked into that system, it's really hard to get out of it. So it's much better to just go to a brother and deal with him face to face. Proper justice. So Exodus 19.12 through Exodus 23.9 contains this one specific family curse in um, chapter 20, verse 4 through 6, tempered with other conditional class action groups of blessings. There's various personal restitutions, penalties, including death, but there is no national curses, none at all. Now in Exodus 23, verse 10, through verse 33, this deals with everything national as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Then in verse 10 through 13, there's the sabbatical year. When you go back into the land, then verse 14 through 19, you get the three national feasts. But that has always been, there's always only been three feasts that you had to come to. But that doesn't mean you're limited to do the three feasts. You can do more, but those are the three that you had to if you were a male come to. But this means that you partake of the seven feasts of Yahweh. But Yom Kippur looks distinctly different. We've covered that before. There's national blessings, but there's no national curses. And this is all done while they're in a pure, holy, sanctified, mikvahed state. Set apart. Then, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1, we find that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, goes up the mountain. This is his sixth trip up the mountain. He's been up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And he goes up the sixth time. And in verse 3 of Exodus 24, we see that Moses recites all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments, all the right rulings. And again, the people answer all the words. Yes, everything we will do. They agree to it. Verse 4, Moshe, Moshe wrote all the words of Yahweh in a book, verse 7. And in verse 5 of Exodus 24, there were burnt offerings and sacrifice, peace offerings, and of oxen. And then in verse 6, half the blood was sprinkled on the altar. 
Now, many people have asked me about animal sacrifice. Well, there's animal sacrifices then in the Malkitetic realm. We have to understand this distinctly. It says that death reigned from Adam to Moshe. I believe John says that. Because Adam was the first Malkitetic, and Moshe was the last Malkitetic who was in a holy, sanctified state and wasn't down involved in the golden calf. Joshua, um, he, he, he was still down there. I mean, he, was, he wasn't all the way up the mountain in a holy state. And we know that Aaron was definitely involved. Oh, well, I didn't touch it, you know. But he was definitely involved. Death reigned from the first Malkitetic to the last Malkitetic. And that's why Yahweh was going to make a whole new nation out of Moshe, because he was an undefiled Malkitetic priest. So there were sacrifices, but it was always under a Malkitetic priest, Malkitetic high priest. Give you an example. Cain and Abel, was there an animal sacrifice? Who was the Malkitetic high priest? Adam. Right? Death reigned from Adam to Moshe. So any sacrifices are under a Malkitetic administration. Cain and Abel, they were under the authority and the administration of Adam. And in Exodus 23, in Exodus 24, we find ourselves that the nation is under the administration of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now with Yeshua, Yeshua is our final and he is the final Malkitzadik Kohen Haggadah. There is no other. He is the final Malkitzadik high priest. He is also the final Sin sacrifice. He is, Hebrews tells us, the final everything. So the priesthood and sacrifices are all wrapped up in him. In his instruction and under his order. So do we do animal sacrifices today? No, because it is under his authority. And the writer of the he- book of Hebrews makes it clear that everything in finality is wrapped up under his order. We can't go out and do something ourselves. And if you submit to a high priest under a Levitical order, you've just chose your high priest. And that's what it all comes down to. Who's your high priest? You do whatever your high priest says. And if you want to go trundling up to a fake, phony temple mount, which isn't a temple mount, it's an Anatonia fortress, and you want to get caught up with all that Levitical high priesthood, then you've chosen your high priest by default. And the consequences of that, they're on you. As for me and my house, I've chosen that Yeshua is the final Malkitetic high priest, and I'll go to the altar outside the gates, up on the Mount of Olives, and I will await further instruction because that's where the Ruach HaKodesh will meet the last generation of saints because the Holy Spirit departed and went east. That's what the prophet Ezekiel said. It's no longer up there in those carnal ordinances contained and those diverse washings. It's amazing stuff as we really come into the culmination of this Malkitzedek realm of living today. I mean, this is something I've struggled with for years. 
And I, I met a friend the other day. In fact, it was, I think, yesterday. And I hadn't seen him in about nine years. Last time I saw him, I think I had a beard down to here. And I was, we, would, we were combative. And we're, we're both grown up a little bit. And he said, so are you still messianic? I said, let me tell you about that. I said, I've grown a lot. And I've come to realize that there is a lot of false religion out there. I said, but I do believe in the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation. But I believe that we should be walking in this Malkitzedic royal covenant Torah. See, sometimes we have to go through tough times to get to the good stuff. But it is, we are that generation that is truly in Yeshua, but seeking out Torah. But it can't be rabbinical Torah but it certainly can't be anomia, lawlessness either. I don't have it figured all out, but I do truly believe that there is a juxtaposition between book of the law and book of the covenant, that they are not the same, that we are to return to the book of the covenant, Malkitzedic life, because we are no longer under the mediator of book of the law imposed Levitical hierarchy.